Hello there! This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Hello, all. Yo, dog. You're still trying to establish that street cred, I guess, huh? You know, me and my homies, we're just kicking it. <laughs> yes, I'm still trying to establish some sort of cred. Street cred. You, want, cred. you actually go out and do graffiti, don't you? Spray paint graffiti. That's right. I use stencils, though. <laughs> and crayons. Washable crayons. So what's new? What's going on? What's the good word? I don't know. I got some more of this screw cap goodness. <laughs> <laughs> More but wine in a box, huh? Madcap screw cap goodness. Yeah, we got some. Uh, I got a screw cap theme going on now. We're gonna have screw caps for a couple of weeks. The wine cellar at the Fairfield Glassworks and Tape Dispensary is uh, chock full, stocked with uh, at least two more wines that have screw tops. Yeah, and I was reading the back of this one, which is um, Two Tone Farm Cabernet Sauvignon from 2002 Napa Valley. It's a California thing. They've got a little thing on the back of their wine, which is pretty interesting. They say that uh, when they share their wines with friends, no old-fashioned farm tools, in other words, corkscrews, are ever required. So, screw cap is their thing. This is not bad. Not bad. Yeah, it's it's reminiscent of last week's wine, actually. I think it is last week's wine, because we poured <laughs> it in this bottle. <laughs> you wouldn't it's, know. I put the cap back on. It's not, it's not as uh, some wine people would call a big cab. You know, mm-hmm. it's not overwhelming. But for people who are overwhelmed by big cabs, this is a cab they might like. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, it's changing my opinion of screw cabs. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about, you know, well, never mind. Well, what's happening? I don't know. Let's just jump right in. Let's let's do the pre-show. <laughs> this is the pre-show? Well, no, we already did the pre-show. Yeah, so this week we watched the final episode of Superhero. Who the wants to be a superhero? Final installment. We got to see the last superhero wannabe get ejected. And let's just say who won. Let's just jump right out with it. Just blurt it out. Well, you can find out by going on sci-fi. Feedback. Feedback won, and he's. I guess it's appropriate that he won because he really did want it more than anyone else and really has lived his life, you know, as a comic book fan and uh, yeah. a huge Stan Lee fan. So, Yeah, I looked at this as more of a let's give it to the guy who wants it the most kind of thing, even though, I mean, to be downright honest, he's not a superhero. He's not going to be a superhero. He's just going to play no, one on TV. he is. He's going to be in a comic book. Yeah. And, and within that universe, they are superheroes. This last challenge, I thought that he actually impressed me a little bit more than, than uh, the... Fat Mama? Large mother. Uh, anyways, he, they did this thing where they were going to a, a, a stunt school mm-hmm. where they, they went to a green screen and they were doing flips and everything. Well, actually, Feedback was the only one who could complete these things. And he was pretty good. I mean, right off the bat, he was getting on the trampoline and doing backflips and forward flips. And and uh, I don't know if he was going to well, be in one of those bad sci-fi made-for-TV Saturday Night movies. I guess he could probably pull it off just as good as anyone else. He's well. It's not clear. Will he be the actual person in the movie? I oh, mean, they will probably he? will use him. Yeah. yeah. But uh, 
in looking back at the other episodes, I did make sort of a mental note one day that he must have studied martial arts or something because he got really excited when he got his new uniform and he did some kicks. And if you look at his leg extension mm-hmm. and you see how loose his hamstring is, you know, he was able to get a full leg extension really high over his head. And most men have really tight hamstrings genetically. I don't know why. They just do. So he's clearly done a lot. And he stretched before yeah, he, did he did the like trapeze thing. Split. Yeah, he did a full split. So he must have studied martial arts or something. So he actually is a bit of an athlete. So it's no, he almost broke his neck, though, on that first uh, I know he came down right on his back yeah he needed a little more rotation but he did pretty good yeah well yeah I was I was impressed with that and I don't know those montages at the end they were kind of lame well they're 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 campy but I mean if you look at what you can do with special effects now with digital effects that that effect probably only cost him 50 bucks yeah it probably cost 50 bucks to generate those effects and they would kick the ass of the original Star Trek series special effects, which is a nice segue. <laughs> Mr. Segway. But, but yeah, anyway, feedback one on Superhero, and it'll be interesting to see what his movie looks like. And um, yeah, I guess he deserved it fine. It was sort of a dorky series, but in, I didn't get as emotionally pulled in as they seemed to. You know, they were just loving each other and crying, and I was like, oh, God. Well, At the, least the side effect of this is that I learned that you can go on to sci-fi, and they've got some full-length things right on their their website because i didn't get to see it on thursday when they aired it and i just went to sci-fi's cha- or uh, website to see what they had on there like if i was going to see a rerun at some point and they had this link to watch the full episode the finale with no commercial so i went and watched that and then i also saw some other things where they had full-length shows and i caught this really cool animated show it's a pilot called the amazing screw on head <laughs> have you seen this no it was done by the same people who did Hellboy, mm-hmm. or the same writers. Mm-hmm. And this is really funny. It's got the voices of Paul Giamatti and David Hyde Pierce and some other people. It's really good. Take a look at it. It's it's definitely worth your while. Yeah. Well, the nice thing, the, the ending to the finale there of the superhero was nice because... Stanley actually showed up in person, right. you know. He's for, if you haven't been watching it, they just like all of the super or all, I should say all of the reality shows. They have a, new, a challenge to do every week, and Stan Lee will will show up and uh, tell them what the challenge is. And he's been only on a TV screen, you know. He's only been presented them on a TV screen, and as far as we know, they've never met him. <laughs> he was an animatronic Stan Lee. <laughs> he was, and finally, he uh, he came out at the end of the episode and gave uh, gave feedback a big hug. And he seemed genuinely impressed and and excited. So it was one of those, you know, good for him. He got to live out part of his dream. Yeah, and that's cool. So anyway, Star Trek. Friend of mine sent me a link the other day, and I forwarded it to John. His one word reply was nice, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think you captured the sentiment of that. That because you know email doesn't do a good job. No, you can't really capture the the nuance, the flair, <laughs> I think the it was more flavor like, of the moment. I think before the word nice, it was more like <sighs> nice. Yeah, there was a long. Uh, exhalation (laughs) sigh so there was I guess what they're doing and they're literally doing it they're going to start airing them a week from today and we are taping on Saturday the 2nd so on the 16th of this month probably on UPN I would imagine United Paramount Network since they own Star Trek or the WB or one other half rate show yeah one of the sort of fake networks they've taken the original Captain Kirk genre Captain Kirk era Captain Kirk Star Treks and they're re- they're re-affecting them. <laughs> yeah, they're doing the George Lucas. 
Not not quite that bad, though. They're not changing plots. They're not making Greedo shoot first. <laughs> but they're taking all of the exterior, ship exterior shots, and they're not they're computer generating everything now. You know, they're they're gonna be John and I just looked at a, a proof of concept on YouTube. It's like Star Trek Refurbished, I think was the title of it. And yeah. you guys can check it out on YouTube. And they're they're being very true to the exterior shots from the original series and they're just uh bringing them up to sort of like modern computer generated star trek the next generation standards you know and they probably were doing it because dvd sales were probably pretty poor for the original series you probably got a lot of young kids who haven't seen the originals and they're used to the the modern effects of the next generation and ds9 yada 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 Mm -hmm. and they go back and look at the originals with sci-fi channel shows them and they're like what the hell is the crap beavis you know (laughs) I mean the the effects themselves. My first objection when I when I pulled off the nice was, man, you know how many times are we going to keep rehashing the same old crap? And then, but then I looked at the the statement and they said they were going to, I guess they're going to add all the computer generated believability that that they deserve or something like that. And I said computer generated believability. This is it's just getting way too far. But then when I saw the the proof of concept, it was. Not as bad as I'd think, you know. Well, they were true to the originals. It's not like they redesigned the Enterprise. They actually scanned the original wooden model that's hanging in the Smithsonian, and they they scanned it in as a computer model, and they just gave it more detail, you know, plating and rivets and and all that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, my concern was not that they were going to make, like, a new ship and and make it into, I don't know, real effects like you'd see in a a sci-fi movie made today. And then cut it with the live action sequences of, you know, 62 or whatever it was. When was it anyway? 66 to 69. You know way too much about it. I'm a Trekkie. Uh, Or Trekker, whatever the hell they are. I thought it was going to be too jarring. The transitions? Yeah, the transitions because they were going to make the the exterior shots hyper-realistic. You know, even if they used the same model, it would be hyper-realistic. But when I saw them, they looked kind of like just better cleaner versions of the old one yeah it looked like a, it looked like original. a plastic model actually still but done a little bit better yeah i don't know it'll be interesting to see they're not actually as i understand it you probably read that too they're not going to be showing them in actual episodic order you know one oh, they through are. 79 i think they're going to be doing like the fan favorites and sort of working backwards or something like that, that. makes sense get some traction so next Two weeks from today, I think they're going to air them. Probably, I would guess on UPN since Paramount owns the Star Trek oh, brand. Absolutely. So it'll be fun to watch and see what they do. I mean, I wonder if they're going to redo phaser blasts and everything, or they're just going to redo the exteriors. You know, because some of those phaser blasts were a little cheesy looking too. I mean, by 1960s effects, it was probably state of the art. You know, but we've just gotten spoiled. You know, I mean, it's amazing how far we've come. Star Wars in 1977 won every Academy Award for special effects there yep. was to be won that year. Yep. And when you go back and look at it, you go, well, if you have actually have the VHS of the original, which I have. Because the DVD, of course, has been updated by Lucas, much like Star Trek, but much more. When you look at them, you know, after being spoiled by the modern effects, you're like, eh, you know, it's all right. But in 77, we were like, wow, that's I was blown away. Yeah. Of course, I was seven. And they (laughs) won every Academy Award, and and they deserved it. ILM was a a new company, a fledgling company, and they just broke all sorts of barriers and... uh, but Lucas ended up making them the way he would have if he had the kind of technology that he has at his disposal now. And, of course, Greedo did not shoot first. <laughs> Lucas, well, or I should say, Han Solo is a murderer. Well, you know what? Actually, I think that you can get recently, I think they've just released the um, the uh, the original 
trilogy, the Star Wars trilogy, where Lucas went back, and this is getting a little bit bizarre, he went back and actually went to the original footage and just cleaned it up. So they're the original versions, they're not with the new footage that's been added. Yeah, so he's he's even making more money by really? re-releasing kind of like remastered, cleaned up versions of the old one, but without adding the new stuff in. I heard that the originals were never going to be available again, no, I, ever. I think we can look after the show, but I think that that's what's been released recently. Well, he did that when he did the re- DVD release of this, the Star Wars, when he released it, he did do that. They did clean it up. They sam- you know, digitized everything, and they mm-hmm. did a lot of work to clean everything up. But I didn't know he was ever going to make available the originals, because yep. I, I might be interested in having those. Yep. So, that be it. I think we've got some tunage. we got a tune. This one has a small story. We've played, uh, and we've talked about the Chapman stick before in the context of Dune, in the context right. of um, Patrick Stewart playing, um, what was the musician's name? Gurney. Gurney Halleck. Yeah. And that was a Chapman stick. And we mentioned that not only was it a modified Chapman stick invented spray by painted. the- Yeah, spray-painted Chapman <laughs> stick invented by the great Emmett Chapman. We mentioned that they used uh, some music from Emmett's album, Parallel Galaxies, as the music of Gurney Halleck. Mm-hmm. We're not playing that tune today, uh, but we will in the future. But what we w- are playing from uh, Emmett uh, is an associate, not an associate, but he's someone I've gotten to know through where I work. And I asked him for permission to play Music Office Record, and he uh, he gave us permission to play it. So we've got a song that really caught my ear. Sorry, Emmett, but this is the one I chose first, and I hope you uh, approve of us playing this one first. I mean, actually, Emmett asked me about our show, and he's going to be listening. He wanted us to uh, really? wanted me to tell him when we were going to play the track, and he's already listened to a few of them, from what I understand. Oh, nice. So this track is called uh, Waltzing Matilda. Matilda by Emmett Chapman.
was uh, Emmett Chapman with the great Bobby McFerrin. Was that Bobby McFerrin? No, I don't, I don't think it was. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I don't have the actual CD in front of me, so I can't credit the uh, accompanist with Mr. Chapman there, but we'll mention him next week when I... Uh, actually, we could probably go online and find his name, but uh, we'll, we'll give him credit next week. Thanks, Emmett, for letting us play that cool track. I like that because that song had so many uh, influences in it. Clearly a very Eastern kind of vocal thing going on in there and almost uh, a medieval... Uh, madrigal in the middle, the whole waltzing Matilda vocal thing he did with Emmett on the stick, and it was just really cool. And then the hip-hop beatbox. A little beatboxing going on. Makes you want to eat hummus, you said? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other part, the Eastern vocal thing made me want to eat hummus. I mean, John actually makes that, by the way, and uh, he made some today, and it's really good. It it is very good, if I say so We're going to eat some. We're going to drink some wine and eat some hummus. Hummers? (laughs) That's gross. (laughs) John makes good hummers. Going to bleep all this out. Uh, <clears throat> we had homework. I had homework. John had homework. And I actually didn't care if he watched the film. I just wanted him to watch it within the week so I could bring it home. <laughs> no. He just wanted to give me homework because he was tired of being the only one getting some. I was getting homework. So the film was The World's Fastest Indian. What did you think of that? And we, I have talked about this before, by the way, but we're going to rehash this just because I really wanted you to see it. It was a good film. That's mm-hmm. all I got to say about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. No, I thought it was a great film. Suddenly you're uh, I'm a mute. <laughs> no, no, it suddenly, was... And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> no, I thought this was a really good film. And, and I'm just... You said this already. I'm, I'm rehashing old ground. I don't know why this wasn't a huge hit. Because it had like all of the things that everyone loves in a big blockbuster hit. Starting with a gigantic star. Huge star. I mean, yeah. I mean... Physically, he was not that big. But. No, no, he's not a Schwarzenegger. It's not a Toma. No, it's uh, Sir Walter Raleigh. What's his name? Anthony Sir Walter Hopkins. Payton. Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. Hannibal that guy, himself. He knows a little bit about acting. Yeah, he was great. And He was uh, in the magic movies, after all. The magic movies? <laughs> Remember there was a film called Ma- Oh, no, anyway. Well, yeah. He was great. Fantastic. Um, and it had a great true story. I mean, that that's always a, a kicker there. True story of a guy who is essentially piecing his life together and makes it huge, makes it big, does something remarkable on very little. I, I don't know why this wasn't just a huge hit. And, and the character himself, very charming guy. The story, I mean, it, it wasn't about the world record that he actually ended up setting it was more about the journey getting there and he even says it in the movie that it's a it's more about the journey it's not about really accomplishing anything and if 
you don't remember my original review of this from a few months ago. It's about a guy who has like a 1920s Indian motorcycle, mm-hmm. and his his goal in life is to take it to the Bonneville Salt Flats and see how fast she'll go. Yep. He's been tuning it up. He's sort of a, a backyard engineer. He casts his own pistons. He completely revamped the frame. He revamped everything on the bicycle, on bicycle, on the motorcycle. Motorcycle. Motorcycle, as he would say. And he gets to go to Bonneville, and he got to go... Seven consecutive years, as a matter of fact. And uh, this film kind of chronicles, it kind of combines them all into one. Um, they sort of imply that he sets the big record on the first attempt, and he really doesn't, but who cares? That's not important. That's right. the, Getting there and the journey getting there, as you pointed out, is is what is important. Yeah, and this takes place in 62. So, I mean, having a 1920 motorcycle in 62, it's already an old motorcycle, and he's made history with this motorcycle. So, yeah, amazing built- guy. Absolutely wonderful film. Uh, you didn't wa- listen to the director's commentary, I don't think, and you didn't watch the documentary, but I have a little more insight into the film having having caught some of those things, and there's a lot of interesting details that the film chose to ignore, again, for artistic license. For example, um, he never actually brought – once he got the motorcycle to America, he never brought the frame home. He'd take the motor out, go home, tune the motor, oh, really? and just bring the motor back. He had some friends who had an Indian motorcycle shop in L.A. or something hmm. that would hold his frame for him. And do things like that. And uh, there was a documentary made by the original make the maker of this film made a documentary about Burt Monroe in the seventies, and that is actually one of the bonus tracks on this film. And so much of the dialogue that Burt Monroe in the film said was just taken directly right from his mouth in the documentary, which made the film even more true for me. Yeah, and and this guy was just filled with all these little one-liners and gems, and and he was a real character. I mean, he had a lemon tree in his backyard, and. He would pee on it every morning, <laughs> and he would make co- or make tea with the water that he would use to cool off the pistons when After he was he cast casting them. them. Yeah, yeah. And he—it's funny because there are a lot of children who've taken claim to be the neighborhood boy. You know, like oh, yeah. uh, when he after he made this film, they're now adults, of course, but they would come up to him and go, "You know, I was a neighborhood kid," and it turns out there were like five people who came up to him and claimed to be the neighborhood kid, including a few girls. <laughs> so <laughs> that was apparently, there was a neighborhood boy who would hang out with Bert and help him do things and just be his friend. And he's sort of, I guess, probably a composite of all of, all of those kids. But definitely a great film. Yeah, uh, what struck me about this was no matter where he went, he made friends with everyone. Yeah. I mean, he would just get himself into all these odd situations and he would just become friendly with every single person he came across. I mean, even... He get, he got pulled over in Nevada when he was testing his motorcycle because he wanted to get the wobble out of it at the high speed. speed. Wobble, <laughs> yeah. And apparently at that time there's no speed limit in Nevada, so they decided to just take it on the road. And he was doing like 150, 160, and a, a police car was going the opposite direction. Pulls him over. Well, it doesn't really pull him over, but but he stops the motorcycle. The police car pulls up. And the guy was just so charming that he's like, well, you know, keep it, <laughs> keep it, keep it slow and. And uh, take it easy next time, you know. Be careful. We don't want people getting killed out here. Yeah, he could he could charm his way into and out of anything, and that's supposed yeah. to be very true of the the actual man, Bert Monroe. From the director's commentaries, you know, he was talking because he got to know Bert very well doing that documentary that he made in the seventies, and yeah, he he thought Bert was quite the charming man. One of the scenes that really um, really struck me in the film, and now I'm having trouble remembering what it was. Um, Say something. I'll think of it in a minute. When he killed that guy on the street, yeah, with the with, with the, the broken with bottle. the nine millimeter. 
<laughs> with the sawed off. When he, but... when he comes out of his office after his face is covered with cocaine <laughs> and he's got this giant machine gun and he's saying, say hello to my little friend. No, I, I don't recall that. But do you know the two guys he made friends with? They came up, the guy with the cigar. I don't right. remember. Raleigh something? Yeah, there were, there were these two guys. And, and I wanted to mention that one guy. He looked like the uh, the character, the, the ugly American that James Bond meets in The Man with the Golden Gun. He's mm-hmm. He's got like a Hawaiian shirt on, a straw hat, and he's smoking a cigar. The chewed up end, you know, yeah. the chewed on cigar. That guy, Raleigh, was another. When they, when they said they were motorcycle fans, they weren't kidding. They were guys who also raced at Bonneville. Yeah. And... A, <laughs> this guy was supposedly really crazy, this Raleigh character, because uh, apparently he did one of his speed runs in a Speedo bikini because he <laughs> thought his clothes were, like, catching the wind and slowing him down. Like, his aerodynamic suit was actually catching wind more like a parachute than an aerodynamic suit. Right. So he actually, somewhere in this world, there is footage of him doing a speed run in a Speedo <laughs> bikini at Bonneville in the 60s. Yeah, and if he wiped out, he would have been totally... Uh, devoid oh of skin. God, he would have been a skeleton, a bloody leftover bone. Not to get too gross, but he would have been a skid mark, a smear, a red skid mark. That's right. And I don't know if you want to spend any more time on this film, but it's since I already kind of talked about it, and it, this film for me, as I said before, was just a barrel of fun. I haven't had that much fun since I was a kid and went to see something like Star Wars. I mean, I left this film giddy. It was just just a really wonderful, sweet film. Yeah, and if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth a rental. The world's fastest Indian with uh, Anthony Hopkins. Sir Anthony. The guy can act. So we do have another tune, and John picked this one, actually. You know, I threw out a couple of tunes at him from a band I recorded called Axis Y, which later changed their name to The Axis Y, which then changed it back to Axis Y. (laughs) Kind of like P. Diddy. It's it's making all the difference. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. They're on Don Kirshner's rock show, aren't they? Of course. Rich says that I picked this, but he gave me a choice of two songs, and it was a 50-50 shot. Well, no, because you listen to the rest of the record. You listen to snippets. Come on, you know. I would have accepted any of those. All know? right. I, okay. this, is, this is democratic. All Come right. On. I picked it. What's it called? Along the Way. By? Axis Y. Let's check it out. No 
Oh yeah, doesn't it feel good? Going all the way back to 1966, the Tinsmen, later changing their name to Spinal Tap, currently residing in the Where Are They Now file. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a quote directly from Spinal Tap. I'm a geek, I know. I'm not disputing any of that. <laughs> nope. You hear that sound? Can you hear that? It's my eyes rolling. It was your wife, actually, I think. No, that was my eyes rolling. Quick review of a film I saw Friday night, last night, called The Great New Wonderful. And for those of you who are interested in seeing this film, fast forward to the gong at the end of our show because I am going to include some spoilers, and they're huge spoilers. This gong? Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Yeah, it's actually at the end of the show. Since you've actually never listened to the show, you're probably not aware <laughs> that, the, that that's actually... I don't yeah. listen to the show. It's a Zen thing for me. Uh, the Great New Wonderful, a 2005 film by Danny Lehner, Lehner, L-E-I-N-E-R, 87 minutes. And someone had told me before I went into this film that this was a 9-11 film. So they kind of ruined it for me. And that's not what you're thinking at all. It's not an Oliver Stone 9-11 film. This is a film about a bunch of, it's a slice of life, about three or four or five uh, couples or people in, in a, you know, Manhattanites or New Yorkers, and the way post-traumatic stress syndrome affected them after 9-11. Hmm. So the film starts out, and you see a little subtitle on the screen, and it says September. That's all it says. And you see people doing their daily things. You know, one of the women, one of the women in here is a cake maker. She makes some of those really exotic three to ten thousand dollar cakes, like that miniseries guy from Philadelphia on Food TV. Yep. And one of the person is a, an office worker who was actually working in the towers. One of the persons is uh, a lot of you remember just just normal everyday people who go to work every day and work nine to five, and. You, there's a moment in the scene very early, for in the movie, very early, where someone is just doing their normal thing at home, and you hear, you hear a jet fly over really low, like that scene we all have saw replayed mm-hmm. ten thousand million times on yep. that that terrible day. But then they cut away to another scene of what other people are doing, not necessarily at the same moment. You know, the plane not, didn't necessarily fly over. So there's all these little clues. If you didn't know anything about the film, there's all of these little clues about what's going on, like September, you know, mm-hmm. and the airplane, the loud airplane. And I'll tell you who's in the film. There's a one of my favorite actors in the world, a great character actor named Tony Shalhoub, and I know you like him. He was on Wings. He yeah, played the crazy phenomenal. Italian uh, cab driver. and uh, Antonio Scarpacci. Yeah, Antonio Scarpacci. And there's some other real names in this film. Maggie Gyllenhaal, Edie Falco, Olympia Dukakis, Stephen Colbert. And again, these we see slices of life from all of these people. And Tony Shalhoub plays uh, a therapist. And one of the people, I'm not sure which actor plays his character, the, he's in his first – it must be something like his company is paying for the psychotherapy because there's, you know, the 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 effect that something this traumatic can have on people can be pretty profound. Oh, yeah. So I suspect he was someone who uh, was affected deeply by this and his employer was paying for probably psychotherapy for a lot of people. And there's a moment where Tony Shalhoub says – what was it like that day being on the seventh floor? And again, 
there's another, another clue, clue that he was in a building and he was on the seventh floor, so he had easy egress out of the building. He could get out safely before the tower had collapsed. And the film is about, it's very much like that throughout the whole film. You see little slices of life from everyone and how the, the stress of this horrific attack on us has affected them. And you, in, in case you, none of these clues dawned on you what was going on at the very end of the film, they finally put up a little subtitle that says September 11, 2002, which would have been the one-year anniversary. And it kind of dawns on you that these – because you must be thinking in watching this film, these people are just crazy. What on earth could have happened to them that caused the, their, their family structure to deteriorate and this, this child in this film to become a violent person? You know right. what I mean? Because there's a child, there's a, a son of a, a, a couple – that starts behaving badly at school acting and he gets out. acting out and he gets the tension and you're going, what is going on that would have caused this? And then of course they put up the one year anniversary subtitle and it kind of dawns on you. And that is like the big payoff. Cause that's at the end of the film. You've already been sitting through 85 minutes of film and then you get the payoff and it all makes sense to you. And for me, that was a very, very powerful moment in the film because without that, you're kind of like, eh, what's this film about? You know what I a mean? Bunch it's, of crazy about, it's about a bunch of crazy New Yorkers. But the payoff was so huge when that came up. I mean, I kind of got goosebumps. And now I don't have to see it. I know. And I, I kind of had to talk about that a little bit because I don't like to talk about spoilers. But uh, I did want to talk about that and, and kind of spoil it, basically. Nice going, Slick. Yeah, well, you know, what can I do? Not have you heard any, Have you heard anything about this film? You had? Do you know? Did you know anything about this film? Prior I didn't to... know anything about the the plot or the, or any of the circumstances, but I'd heard the title before, and I, I think I'd seen a couple of the the characters listed as or the, the uh, character actors listed as uh, being part of it. Right. So you know, obviously, most of the other people in the industry have more respect for me than you do. Right. <laughs> and uh, superficially, I mean, outside with. with Outside of the context of the film and whether or not it was it was good, I liked a lot of the characters. I liked Tony Shalhoub's character. He was sort of this crazy psychotherapist, and there crazy were these psychotherapists. Two, yeah, he he really was. And there were these two Indian, as in the country of India, uh, fellows who it's not really clear what their jobs were, but we got the impression that they were like bodyguards to a, an Indian general. Or maybe the Indian ambassador to the UN or something. So they had real jobs. I mean, they had the little mm-hmm. CIA earpieces and they were packing heat. And But it was legitimate. They weren't bad guys. They weren't criminals. Packing heat? You mean they had like back problems? No, not at all. They were just, they had guns. Oh, and, guns. Yeah, okay. they had guns. And what was interesting about those two guys was not unlike in the film Pulp Fiction, we there, there was all these incredibly interesting dialogues between the two of them. When, for example, when the, their charge was in a building doing something official, they didn't need to be sort of guarding him because he was in the building where there perhaps already was security. Mm-hmm. So they were outside the door, kind of waiting for him to go out, you know, standing by the car, and they would have these sort of interactions, not unlike the two guys in Pulp Fiction did, which were talking actually, about foot rubs, everything, you know, just about their personal lives and everything else. And they were very, very likable guys. So superficially, I found a great many of the characters very interesting, and in, and in the film itself, I found to be uh, wonderful. So anyway, definitely check that out. I thought the film was was actually quite good. There were some people who I know that left the film, and I'm not sure they got it. They were just like, yeah, they were bored with the uh, the incidental conversations and that kind of thing. Yeah, they didn't, you know, and they apparently weren't patient enough to wait for the payoff. And they just, I met with uh, some of them at the coffee shop, and they were just kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know. I thought it was a nice piece of work, though. You know, it was sort of a different look at 9-11 because I'm, I'm a little bit tired of these sort of patriotic flag-waving looks, and, and I'm not trying to sound 
callous or uncaring. But this, this, these other sorts of films are the kind of things that, you know, the kind of flag waving that would, would cause people to believe in George Bush's illegal war would get behind, you know. And while it was a, a horrific, tragic day, you know, Iraqis did not attack us, you know. In fact, most of the people were Saudis, so. Well, and, and I think that um, even Oliver Stone's film, I don't think that he, and I haven't seen this, so I'm not really speaking from experience, but from what I've heard, he's not focusing on the reaction to 9-11. He's focusing on, you know, just the, the human heroism that took oh, place on that day. Absolutely. So absolutely. I think that's what it's really more about. Let's can this show before we before it goes an hour. I mean, this could be our longest show ever. Sorry. So here's that gong. No, the klaxons. Anyway... Check us out on the web, www.bloodyveg.com. Send us email, feedback, um, I don't know, account numbers, pin numbers, whatever you got. <laughs> feedback at bloodyveg.com. Check out our online forum, which we're getting a lot of spam on, but it's okay. Some of it's actually amusing sometimes. <laughs> it is. And I've gotten some great medication from it, too. Oh, yeah. It's great. So that's uh, bloodyveg.com slash forum. Yep. And uh, if you make hummus, send us some freeze-dried uh, some of that. And I'm not maybe, eating it. <laughs> maybe some kicked-up emerald-style mashed potatoes or something. Yeah, if you want my recipe for hummus, I'll put that on the web. Actually, we should, because I want to start making that. Yeah. But remember, you've been listening to the Blood City of Engineering on the VIB Network. Oh, I said it. You're listening to VIB. 